Good morning, Restoration Church. Uh, well, if I am honest, my heart is being pulled in all kinds of directions this morning. Uh, we have some marriages that took place from Lima to Leesburg yesterday in the life of our church. Uh, we have uh, people that this is their last Sunday that are near and dear to our church. We have our brother Alejandro facilitating service for the first time, who, Lord willing, will send out to go plant a Spanish-speaking church. If you noticed, as he was praying, his Spanish accent was a little more clear than his English. Rolls right off and beautiful, and so we trust what the Lord is going to do there. I've been thinking about a text this week that is hard, and I know so many of you have concerns in your hearts that are weighing you down. And so I'm just being pulled all over the place. And so uh, I'm going to make a note of a couple things, and then I'm going to pray and hopefully settle my heart. Uh, But on your way in... Uh, You received, hopefully, this July and August upcoming events, and so you can read those and and make note of what our church will be doing uh, over the next couple of months. But let me draw your attention to two of those things. Uh, Next Sunday at 9 a.m., the Titus 2 Forum starts back at 9 a.m. There'll be two options. One will be a book study through this little book right here, You Are What You Love. Uh, I can't commend this book highly enough. I don't agree with everything in it, but it is very thought-provoking and helpful And so there'll be a group that gathers and discusses this, chapter 1, next week. And then there's also an option for the ladies to study the book of Zephaniah together. And so uh, make note of those. Then also, let me remind you that community groups will take a break for July and August. And so it is a break in some sense, because we're not going to gather formally. But also let me encourage you to use this time to connect with others uh, that maybe you don't get a chance to as often inside the life of our church. Let me pray for us. Father, we do come and we admit we need you. You are all that we have. And thankfully, you are all that we need. So as we go to your word, use it to attend to our souls that we might delight in the supremacy of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. Some of you may have heard by a guy of the name of Augustine. He was an early church leader in the 4th century, and he famously wrote this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So the longing of our hearts for something more, something beyond ourselves, is powerful. I think we all acknowledge that. And we, we need something to complete our broken hearts minds and souls and augustine rightly points out this completion is not through romance it's not through materialism it's not through wealth it's not through learning but rather in coming to know the one who formed us but as often as augustine is quoted he is not the first one who came up with this idea i think we see this very same thing in the letter to the church at philippi in verses 4 through 7. And so what I'd like you to do is I'd like you all to stand, and we're going to read the sermon text together this morning. So let's stand, and let's read Philippians 4, 4 through 7, as God's people. Let's read together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. So these verses have provided much comfort to Christians throughout the ages, and for good reasons. There are some great promises here. And Restoration Kids, this is your memory verse this month. Philippians 4, 4, 6, and 7. And so this passage is warming to our souls. But it's also staggering when you stop and you consider it. In this passage, we have five commands. Command number one, rejoice in the Lord. Command number two, again, I will say rejoice. Command number three, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Command number four, do not be anxious. Command number five, let your requests be made known. And if that's not daunting enough, did you notice the sweeping nature of Paul's commands? Rejoice when? Always. Let your reasonableness be known to who? Everyone. What can we be anxious about, Paul? Nothing. What should we pray about? Everything. All-encompassing, no excuses, no exceptions. And if that's all we focused on, we would feel like we had been boxing Mike Tyson for the next 45 minutes, and we'd just be beat up. But notice, Paul does not just tell the Philippians what to do. Right in the middle of these verses, he gives us the reason why. Did you notice what he said at the end of verse 5? The Lord is at hand. That is the foundation for all that Paul says here. The Lord as is at hand. And this truth reminds us and comforts us that these words are not just weighty prescriptions that we try to follow. They're wonderful promises that lead us into the good life. And so if I were to summarize these verses, I would say it like this. The Lord is near... So rejoice and rest in Him. The Lord is near, so rejoice and rest in Him. And that will be our guiding thought this morning. So let's look at each part of that statement. The Lord is near. So Paul says there, the Lord is at hand. He's saying the Lord is close. But, but what, in what sense is Paul saying this? Does he mean that the Lord is close or near in terms of His return? Or is he saying that the Lord is near and close in terms of our relationship? Yes, I think is the answer. Just a few verses earlier in 3.20, remember what we studied a couple weeks ago, Paul tells Grace Church Philippi to remember, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So Paul is calling their attention to the nearness of the return of Christ. See, the next chapter in God's unfolding story of the world, the next event and the narrative that God has written is the return of Christ who will restore all things back to the way it's meant to be so we can enjoy the world as God has always meant it. And so after this sermon, we'll sing a song and it's going to talk about the return of Christ. It's, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And then in the, the fourth verse, it says, 
When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found. And so we hope in the return of Christ. So Jesus is coming back and Paul says this changes everything. The return of Christ is the anchor for our soul in the midst of the storm of life. The return of Christ reminds us there's a delicious meal coming. All the joys of this world are mere appetizers for what awaits for us. So Restoration Church, the Lord is near. We have a heavenly hope, so we have good reason to rejoice and rest in Him. But that is not the only sense Paul talks about the nearness of the Lord. Throughout this letter, Paul continually references Christians being united to Christ. If you go back to chapter 1, who's the letter addressed to? To all the saints in Christ Jesus. And then Paul prays that prayer in the beginning of the letter, and he says, I want you to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. In chapter 2, remember, Paul instructed them to have a humble, selfless mind, which is yours where? In Christ Jesus. And by the way, brothers and sisters, you have an upward calling of God. Where is that? In Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, Paul says, I want to gain Christ and be found where? In Him. Paul understands his relationship with Christ. And if you focus your attention on our verses this morning, you'll notice that they're bookended. The very beginning, rejoice where? In the Lord. And then in verse 7, it ends in Christ Jesus. So this is called union with Christ. The Lord is near. We are bound to Him, united to Him with His Spirit. So the way you can think about the union of, with Christ is all that belongs to Jesus belongs to those who trust in Him. All that belongs to Jesus belongs to those who trust in Him. Nothing, literally nothing, can separate those who are in Christ from the love of God. So Restoration Church... The Lord is near. We enjoy union with Him, so we have great reason to rejoice and rest. And so Paul is talking about nearness in terms of Jesus' future return and in terms of our present relationship. So we look forward with a heavenly hope. The Lord will soon return. And we enjoy an earthly reality. The Lord is always present. And notice... Again, what the text says. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. That word is might seem insignificant, but it's massively important. It tells us this is a statement of fact, of what is true. Paul is not saying, conjure up inside yourselves a feeling like the Lord is near. He says, no, this is a fact that should orient your life. So what we feel, I know this is hard, but what we feel does not determine what is true. What we feel does not determine what is true. I know we don't always feel like the Lord is near. But Paul would say, brother, sister, look back. Look back at the cross. Look 
back at the empty tomb and remember the Lord is near. He is so near. His name is Emmanuel. God with us. He is so near that He sent His Spirit to indwell you, Christian. And He's so near that you have a heavenly hope. Unhindered, unbroken communion with the Lord. And one day He will be so near that when you see Him, you will be transformed into His likeness. That's how near the Lord is. And so, you may not feel it, but that is true. And so only when we understand this, beloved, that the Lord is near, will we be able to begin to enjoy the invitation of these commands that follow. That is the foundation. And so this passage tells us the Lord is near, and so what should we do? Rejoice and rest in Him. The Lord is near, so rejoice in Him. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Twice in this passage, we are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. In fact, five times, five times in Philippians alone, we are commanded, commanded to rejoice in the Lord. And here, Paul adds the word, Always. And so this might strike us as strange or impossible. One, how can joy be commanded? Two, is it really possible to rejoice always? And three, why in the world is Paul talking about joy anyway? Isn't the Bible more about judgment? What's going on, Paul? I think it's helpful to remember where Paul is when he's writing this letter. He's not in an ivory tower with his feet kicked up on a, on a nice comfy chair drinking a latte. No. He's shackled in chains, sitting in a prison, being watched by guards. This man comes from a man who's being persecuted for the gospel. And then you think about the Philippian church. They too are being persecuted. They have enemies around them. There are false teachers in their midst. There's conflict amongst the believers in their church. And Paul commands them and us to rejoice. But how can Paul command us to rejoice? Isn't joy a matter of feeling and spontaneous emotion? No. At least not the joy that Paul is talking about. The joy that Paul is talking about is not just a victim of our emotions or dictated by our fickle feelings. Or, joy is not like cotton candy. So the kids are in here this morning. They all love cotton candy, I presume. Maybe some adults do too. Uh, But cotton candy, you look at it and it's nice and fluffy and sweet and you eat it. But there's no substance, so it dissolves only leaving you as hungry as you were before. That's empty. It might appear good, but it's void of any true substance. That's not the joy Paul is calling for. He's not calling for a shallow happiness. Notice the command. Rejoice where? In the Lord. In the Lord. 
This joy is not based on circumstances, possession, health, job title, bank account size, or the number of degrees behind your name. Our joy does not come from circumstances, but Christ. Our deepest joy does not come from what's inside of us or around us, but what from Jesus has done and what he will do. So to be clear, this does not mean that we walk around smiling and outwardly exuberant all the time. That would be cotton candy. So the same Paul who wrote this also wrote 2 Corinthians 6 that says, We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Or to put it more close to home, I got an update this, this week from our friends in the Middle East, serving amongst an unreached people group. And their newsletter started this way. We count it one of the greatest privileges to serve in this region. That's rejoicing. That's not to say that being here is not without its challenges. That's realistic. Rejoicing yet realistic. And so this command for rejoicing is not an empty declaration that nothing is wrong. It's an expectant hope that Jesus makes everything right. This rejoicing here is not a passive emotion consumed by how we feel. It's an active response controlled by who we are in Christ. Sometimes that's outward and expressive. Sometimes it's inward and quiet. And a lot of that depends on personality. Paul is not calling for a personality. He's calling for rejoicing about who you are in Christ. And the ups and the downs, we rejoice because the Lord is at hand. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope you see the wonder of what Paul is writing. Joy in the Christian life. Yes, joy, happiness, delight in the Christian life, is not just commendable, it is commanded. So do you see what this means? God is more interested in your delight than He is your duty. God does not just want your decisions, He wants your affections. This God of the Bible does. And so pursuing anything other than the fullness of joy in Christ is sinful. Pursuing anything other than the fullness of joy in Christ is sinful. This is not typically the way we talk about sin, is it? So you're saying not pursuing joy is sinful, Joey? Yes, I'm saying not pursuing joy in Christ is sinful. So too often Christianity is defined by what you shouldn't do. That's not Christianity. And so for the kids that are in here this morning, I hope that you see that the Bible and Christianity is not about following rules. It's about being happy in Jesus. Children, rejoice in the Lord. Be happy in Christ Jesus. God is not a grumpy grandpa in the sky waiting for you to mess up so he can yell at you. That's not the God of the Bible. True Christianity is God glorifying and soul satisfying.
true Christianity is about the exaltation of Christ through the exaltation in him. We delight in his supremacy. The Christian life in many ways is about joy. And that's good news. Because I think we all want joy. That's why you're here this morning. Either you have it and you want to celebrate it all the more, or you're looking for it. But we all want joy. We were made for joy. We are motivated by that which we think will bring us happiness and pleasure. But far too often, we chase the things that do not end up providing what they promise. And so the ultimate bliss of that all-satisfying relationship soon fades because we recognize the other person is sinner just like we are. The joy of that promising new job is a distant memory as you turn in one long day after another. The gladness of that really big accomplishment, as awesome as it was, is rarely referenced or thought of anymore. And the pleasure of that indulgent sin, though it gave you some happiness for a brief moment, only left you really feeling guilt, trapped, and empty. But what if, what if there was a joy that could forever satisfy our souls? And what if, what if God was so committed to you being full of joy that he did everything necessary to make that possible? Wouldn't that be good news this morning? Well, this is the message of Christianity, that God is not going to give you a desire that he cannot fulfill. God is not like that bullfighter who holds out the red cape only to get you to run, except when you get close, he moves it away and says, try again. That is not the God of the Bible. No, God wants you to be alive forever with maximum, yes, maximum joy. And he has done everything necessary at the cost of his eternal son to make that happen. And what will make you eternally happy? God himself. In the presence of God, there's a fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16, 11. Jesus says in John 15, I want your joy to be full. I have come that you might have life, exceedingly abundant life. How do we get into the presence of God? Through Christ. 1 Peter three eighteen. Jesus also suffered for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring us to God. This is the good news of the Christian life, that God sent his only son, Jesus the Christ, fully God, fully man, to live a perfect, joyful life. It wasn't just a sinless life, like it was cold and isolated. No, it was a joyful life, loving God with his heart, his mind, his soul, his strength, and his neighbor as himself, so much so that he laid his life down for his neighbor. And on the cross, he died, paying sin, demolishing guilt, obliterating shame, crushing Satan, defeating death because he rose again on the third day. And when he came forth out of the tomb, he brings a joy, yes, a joy that satisfies our every desire and answers our every hope. This is the good news. Rejoice in the Lord because he makes you happy. Friends, if you're not trusting and rejoice in Christ, I hope that you see something maybe that you've never seen this morning. God is not necessarily against your desires. He wants to properly direct them. God finds your desires not too strong, but too weak. 
you have an appetite in your soul for joy. Don't lose that. But also, don't be too easily satisfied. Don't settle for a greasy cheeseburger and fries at McDonald's when a five-course meal at Ruth Chris is being offered. In other words, don't stuff your soul with the crumbs of the world so that there's no room left to feast upon the Christ who made it all. The refrain of the Bible is not say no to bad things. Maybe that's what you came in thinking this morning. Like the Bible says no to bad things. It says some of that, but that's not the main message. The main message is say yes to the best thing. Rejoice in Christ. And so God is not calling you away from your joy, friend. He wants you to turn from your sin and your lesser joys that you could have a greater joy that he might complete your joy. This is why our mission statement talks about delighting in Christ. We just took it out of Philippians 4 and hundreds of other places in the Bible. And so, friend, if you're seeking ultimate joy elsewhere, whether it's success, status, physical intimacy, food, exercise, approval, favorable circumstances, whatever it is, God is inviting you to take the hint of those joys and roll it up into Him who is greater. Will you Will you give up a lesser joy for a greater joy in Christ this morning? And for my Christian brothers and sisters, I hope you see a bit more clearly the wonder of this command. Not the weight, but the wonder. Yes, the wonder of rejoicing in the Lord. That's why Paul can say always. Do you see it now? Always. Why? Because it's not in our circumstances. It's in Christ. He's better than anything prosperity can give, and he's better than anything suffering can take. He is always with us. He will never leave us. He is reigning, and he is returning. Yes, until the Lord comes, we will face stressful situations. We will walk through unfavorable circumstances. We will battle humiliating sicknesses. We will have to deal with interpersonal woes. We will cry tears over lost loved ones and debilitating diseases. We will battle the effects of sin and brokenness in the world. Yet the Lord is at hand. He is near because of what Christ has done. Reconciled us back to God and what he will do. Restore the earth. And so we may rejoice at all times. In fact, we must rejoice at all times. And as we rejoice in all things, will also be reasonable to everyone. Look again at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So at first, it may appear there's little connection here. I was studying, like, Paul, you're talking about rejoicing, and then you move on to reasonableness. What's going on? Like, what are you doing here? And then I remember the, the immediate context. So remember chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is talking about standing firm in the Lord. And then one of the ways that we do this is we agree in the Lord, verses 2 and 3. And two gals, Yodi and Syndiki, were, were fighting. They had lost their first love and maybe had come sour saints. And so they're, they're, they're fighting against one another. And Paul says, stand firm, agree in the Lord. 
And then on the heels of calling these women to agree, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And I think one of the primary applications of rejoicing in the Lord is being reasonable to others. And so that word reasonable, Paul is not talking about being as as logical in our faith as possible. Like all we need to be able to do is give a logical and forceful explanation of why we believe what we believe. That can be helpful, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is calling us to to be gracious in our attitude, gentle in our speech, and considerate in all that we do. So for example, this same word is used in Titus 3, where Paul is instructing Christians on how to live. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, that's the same word, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. So do you see the connection? The joyful person, the one who's rejoicing in the Lord, has been delivered from accession to self. The one who is rejoicing in the Lord is not controlled by immediate circumstances. And when this happens, we can be gentle to those around us even those who disagree with us. So the joyful Christian is the gentle Christian. The joyful Christian is the gentle Christian. We are joyful when you're joyful in the Lord, fully convinced that he's near, that our relationship with him is secure by grace, and that in him is the good life. Then we won't have to fight for our personal preferences and tirelessly defend ourselves. When we're joyful in the Lord, fully convinced that he's near, returning soon, we will not have to be in the role of condemning judge. We can entrust that to the Lord, the perfect judge. When we're joyful in the Lord, we realize other people are not just problems to solve. They are image bearers to love. Why? Because this is the way Christ loved us. Humbly, winsomely, sacrificially, with truth and with grace. And so notice again what Paul says. Let your reasonableness be known to who? Everyone. Everyone. So I think everyone means everyone. This has implications for the way we treat each other and for the way we treat those who are not followers of Christ. So with our Christian brothers and sisters, we should be quick to agree on all that we have in common in Christ. Go back and listen to Nathan's sermon from last week about agreeing on all that we have in common. And so there will be times when you're offended by another Christian, another member of this church, when you feel dismissed, or yes, when you disagree on a secondary theological issue. In those moments, rejoice in the Lord and remember God's gentleness and grace toward you and then offer that same gentleness and grace to your brother or sister. And with non-Christians, with our relationship with those who are not trusting in Christ. We should be kind and humble and winsome, even if they disagree with us. Even if they don't like our gospel message. Too many times, the witness of the gospel has been lost, not simply because of what was said, but because of how it was said. 
So if you're, a, if you're not a follower of Christ this morning and you've been offended by an arrogant, harsh, mean-spirited person who claims to be a follower of Christ, I am sorry. And I hope that you see from our own text that is not the way that it's supposed to be. True words with a harsh tone are nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Loud, annoying, and obnoxious. Yes, we need to have conviction, brothers and sisters, but it must be a conviction spoken with kindness, with gentleness. And so if there's going to be something offensive to those that are not trusting in Christ, let it be the pure, unadulterated gospel of the Lord Jesus. Not our arrogance or mean-spiritedness. To use the words of Peter, we should live like this. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Many of Christians have memorized that verse, and I praise God for that. But can I encourage you to memorize the next part as well? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And Restoration Church, may this joyful gentleness and respect mark us in our relationships with each other and those who do not know Christ. And guess what? I praise God that on the whole it does. I'll say often, we are not a perfect church. We are deeply flawed people. But on the whole, I believe this gentleness and joy and respect mark us. I've seen conflicts resolved or even avoided by members in this church because they've let the gentleness of Christ be the guide, not their personal preferences. I praise God for that, brothers and sisters. May that continue. And many of you live out your Christian convictions and share the gospel with humility, even with those who think you're wrong or ridiculous for believing that God is real, the Bible is true, Jesus is the eternal Son, and the only way to have a relationship with God is through repenting and trusting in Him. And yet you humbly live out your faith. Press on all the more with gentleness and respect. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. Why? The Lord is near. The Lord is near, so rejoice in Him. And the Lord is near, so rest in Him. Rest in Him. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul is calling the Philippians to rest in the Lord by putting off anxiety and putting on prayerfulness. So evidently, anxiety was an issue 2,000 plus years ago in the church at Philippi. Otherwise, he would have had no reason to address it. And the issue remains today, and so do the commands. And so if the, if the command to rejoice in the Lord always seemed impossible, the call to not be anxious about anything might even seem more so. Anything, Paul? Yeah, that's what the Greek means. Anything. I, I recently came across an article in the New York Times about the presence of anxiety found in the United States. Uh, in the article, one lady was quoted as saying, If you're a human being living in 2017 
and you're not anxious, there's something wrong with you. The article went on. So it seems we have entered a new age of anxiety. Monitoring, monitoring our heart rate rates, swiping ceaselessly our iPhones, filling meditation studios in an effort to calm our racing thoughts. The number of web searches involving the term anxiety has nearly doubled over the last five years, according to Google Trends. End quote. Now, I've prayed a lot this week because I know the moment that I start talking about anxiety, some of you right now are feeling anxious. It's real to you. This is not words on a paper. It's a weight in your soul. You experience this in a, in a way that I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't experience it. And so I want to be pastoral and tender, and I do not want to compromise what God says. And so I cannot address everything about this topic in one part of one sermon. But I do want you to know a couple things. You're not alone. You're not alone. It goes back at least 2,000 years. Don't believe the lie. So let another community group member, let myself or another elder know so that we can walk with you and get you the help you might need, whatever that might be. We're happy to walk with you. And so I've been praying this week that these words, as we walk through them, wouldn't add more weight, but would bring a sense of relief to you. And so I want us to notice a couple of things. I want us to notice, first of all, what Paul doesn't say. So sometimes people will try to help people with anxiety by saying, oh, don't worry, there's nothing to worry about. That's not what Paul says. Paul does not say, do not be anxious because there's nothing to worry about. That's trite, cheap, and ridiculous. That's not his reasoning. In a world filled with brokenness, sin, and struggles, on top of our failures, flaws, and finiteness, there are reasons to worry. Some of you came in this morning asking questions. Do I have any real friends who care about me? What about my, sp- what about my health? Will I ever find a spouse? Will I pay off my debt? Will my marriage ever improve? Why won't the Lord give us children? Will the pressures of my work ever relent? Will I ever find a job? Will I ever stop dwelling on that sin I committed? Will I ever not be defined by that sin committed against me? Those are just a few. So it does no good to pretend there's nothing to worry about. Paul is not saying anxiety and worry affects only those who are weak and immature, so pretend to be strong and act like there's nothing to worry about. He isn't saying those things throughout this letter. Why did Paul write this letter? Because he's concerned. And back in 2.20, we read that Paul and Timothy are genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. In 2.25, we read Epaphroditus is distressed for the Philippians. In 2.28, Paul says he will be less anxious when Epaphroditus returns safely. So Paul is not saying, do not be sad, do not be upset, and do not be unconcerned with what's important. He's saying, 
Do not let your worries and uncertainties control or consume you more than Christ. Paul is saying there are reasons to worry, but there are greater reasons not to. The Lord is near, so rest in Him. I was thinking about it this way. Um, When I was first teaching my daughters to swim, we didn't get them lessons, I basically just threw them in the pool and said swim. By God's grace, they can now swim. But those first several times, they couldn't swim. And guess what? They would get really nervous and anxious if daddy wasn't near. But the moment that I got into the water with them, they would calm down. Why? They still couldn't swim. What was the difference? Daddy was near. And daddy's presence swallowed up their fear. That's Paul's argument here. Daddy's presence, our Father in heaven, swallows up our worries. We serve an immovable God in a movable world. And so the Lord Jesus will return soon to make all things right. We have a heavenly hope. And until then, the Holy Spirit binds you, Christian, to Christ. And God wants you to enjoy his sweet communion and have a profound sense of your assurance of his lavish love and that he cannot wait to spend eternity with you and all of his sons and daughters. So rest in the Lord's promised return and his presence now. See, we get restless and anxious when we begin to forget these things, when we forget the Lord is near, when we forget Christ loves us and yes, he likes us when we forget that God is good and gracious and in control, because what happens when we, when we forget these things or we doubt these things, we end up believing that we have to be in control. And when that happens, we begin to carry a weight we were never meant to carry. It's like an ant trying to carry a brick. It'll only end up crushing you. So anxiety and worry begin to narrow our focus on all that could go wrong. It probes possibilities that will never happen. And so anxiety pulls us away from God and into ourselves. It shrivels us. And anxiety says, I I can't believe. I I don't believe. If that's what anxiety is, then the solution is being convinced of God's goodness and graciousness and resting in Him. And look at verse 6 again. How does this happen? Do not be anxious about anything, but, here's the answer, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul tells us the antidote to worry is prayer. If anxiety causes us to live through a microscope, prayer is our telescope. It gets our perspective back on what is right and real and big and true. So if anxiety says, I don't believe in God, the prayerful antidote is, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a good prayer. Mark chapter 9. So it's not having it all figured out. That's not the answer. Prayer, in fact, tells us we need to admit our weaknesses and our, 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 our worries and go to God. Notice Paul's words here. He uses three words, prayer, supplication, requests. 
I think he's just trying to highlight the importance of this. The, the prayer is the, the broad aspects of being devoted to Christ. And the request is the narrow aspect of asking specific things. So Paul is saying, patiently, persistently spread your needs before God, casting all your burdens on him because he cares for you. And note, remember, who's he writing to? Not to one person, to a church. Prayer is done community, not just individually. And notice it to be done with thanksgiving. Paul doesn't say just go to God and ask Him for things. In some ways, that could reinforce the focus being all about you. With thanksgiving reminds us our prayers need to be flavored with praise of who God is and what He has done. Prayerfully thanking God for past blessings safeguards us against future anxieties. And being thankful means we'll be content no matter what happens resting that it's for God's glory and our good. And so anxiety tries to convince us that God is distant and unconcerned, but prayer reminds us He's near. So this is one of the reasons we, we encourage you to go to corporate prayer when T2 is not happening on Sunday mornings. To be reminded, God is near. It's why we spend devoted time in this service praying to remind ourselves that together we are not in control, but God is. The Lord is near. So, brothers and sisters, how is your prayer life? Do you spend consistent, devoted time praising God for His character? Do you ask specific requests for yourself and others? Are your prayers flavored with generous thanksgiving? Do you regularly attend corporate prayer? When we pray together in here, do you actively engage or is it time to check out for about 10 minutes? When you don't feel like praying, Do you ask others to pray with and for you? Moms and dads, do you regularly pray with your children? So if you want a little booklet to maybe stoke your prayer life, first come, first serve, I'm going to set them right here. Enjoy Your Prayer Life by Michael Reeves. You can read it in 30 minutes. Come grab one, let it fuel your prayer life. So what's the result of living this way, Paul? Verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, if we heed his encouragement and rejoice in the Lord prayerfully and rest in him, there will be a peace in the depths of our being. But beloved, Paul is not giving you a formula to try. He's pointing you to a person to trust. This is not mechanical prayer and everything will be okay. No, prayer is how we draw near to the Lord. That's the foundation. The only thing that can separate from from God is your sins. And through Christ, if you're trusting in Christ, you have been washed clean and can draw near to God. And notice this peace is not just any peace. It's the peace of what? Peace of God. Peace of God. That's why Jesus' words in John 14 make sense. Peace I leave, leave with you. My peace I give to you. That's why it surpasses all understanding. It's not of this world, so it can't be explained by this world. This peace guards us, protects us, not by changing our circumstances, but by giving us Christ, who is our peace. See, rejoicing and praying like this does not give us a less chaotic life. It gives us a less chaotic heart. This is the type of peace that lets you rejoice when you're diagnosed with cancer, Because you know this world is not your home. 
This is the type of peace that comfortably says no to a job promotion because it's going to hinder your ability to serve the local church. This is the type of peace that puts an unwavering yes on the table to go serve unreached peoples with the gospel. This is the type of peace that offers forgiveness to someone who wrongs you, though it makes no sense. This is the type of peace that moves a family from Venezuela to D.C. to plant a church with little or no promises of success, trusting in God. This is the type of peace that promotes sacrificial generosity and simple living when the world calls us to consume and hoard. And yes, this is the type of peace that says goodbye to friends leaving Restoration Church in D.C. with tears, but with a heavenly hope, knowing that this is not goodbye, but only see you later. This is the type of peace that we enjoy in Christ, but cannot be explained apart from Him. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is near. Rejoice and rest in Him. And as we do this, we'll be a church that's united, standing firm in the Lord. As we remember the Lord is near, rejoicing and resting in Him, we'll enjoy the gospel together and we'll advance the gospel together that our joy might be made complete. That's the wonderful promise of this passage. The Lord is near. Rejoice and rest in Him. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word that what at first seems like weighty prohibitions upon us are actually wonderful invitations for us. How kind of a God you are. We are so thankful that you have done everything necessary in the person, the work of Jesus Christ to fulfill our joy in him. Help us, Lord. Help us live this out with charitableness and gentleness that we might paint a beautiful picture of Christ who is the fullness of joy. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.